Hello and welcome to the Adaptive Edge of Education. My name is Miranda Shorty and today I have with me Dr. Gavin Henning. He is a professor of higher education at New England College and also uh, the director of the Doctor of Education program at New England College and absolutely brilliant and fantastic with all <laughs> quantitative in a way that I probably will never understand for the rest of my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, but today he's here talking about a different topic related to education um, that he sees as a potential adaptive challenge for education. So uh, Gavin, if you'd like to take it away and, and tell us what your thoughts are. Sure. So I, I find um, AI really interesting. You know, we've been using it for a long time, either, you know, Siri or Alexa, um, but really haven't thought about it as uh, artificial intelligence that way. You know, but everything really kind of exploded uh, back in November 2022 when um, OpenAI released their chat GPT. Um, platform and um, really was accessible to everybody. And, you know, the biggest challenges in, in education really was concern about students using it for cheating, which mm. I think is certainly an issue that we need to address. But I think there are some bigger issues and deeper issues to consider. Some of them are positive, but some of them are negative. Um, and I think we need to think a little bit beyond the cheating issue, um, although we do have to address that. So what is the potential and the positive potential for AI and education to really revolutionize a very, very old way of um, teaching and educating students? You know, we have a really antiquated um, process um, and maybe AI is a way to kind of transform that. So I think it's really interesting that you you talked about how we've been using AI for a long time, but we don't really think of it that way because perhaps it was never as obtusely AI as ChatGPT is mm. or um, Bard or some of the other like bigger ones. But um, what I was thinking about recently was, and I don't remember this, I was, I think, seven when we first got the internet in my household and I <laughs> like I don't know, maybe like nine or 10 when we first started using it in school regularly. So, um, so I don't really remember kind of what the thoughts or feelings were at the time, but I'm wondering if when the internet was introduced, if there was this same kind of um, rhetoric or ideology toward the introduction of that kind of technology at school. When I was looking through some of the resources that you sent to me, I was looking at some of the language and it, and it seems really like ominous and 1984-ish. Like some of, the, <laughs> some of the words that they're using are like worry, disruptive, death, alarmed, terror. Like I was just looking at that language, which seems so like, um, you know, end of days, war of the world. <laughs> I think that they shared one thing that said, you shared one thing about um, the gentleman who said the college essay is dead um, with the introduction yeah. of chat GPT. And when I, I guess what I was wondering was, do you, was, is there another thing you can think of? And I, maybe it's the internet, maybe not um, that, was similar in its um, sort of ominous or threatening tone towards education. Yeah. Well, the, the analogy that's popped up, at least in a lot of the higher education listeners and conversations, the use of the calculator and how the calculator changed mathematics, uh, both teaching the mathematics, but also the ability to focus on higher order types of mathematics. Um, you know, so the, it, it seems there was similar concern 
And I remember back, you know, when calculators became, you know, really got to be really complex and using it in my um, pre-calc class in, in high school and some other classes, you know, the professors were really, you know, the teachers were really concerned about that because now um, students didn't have to learn how to compute everything by hand and you didn't have to memorize uh, multiplication tables and things like that. And, and what the, the discussions online, at least for higher ed was, that really allowed a focus on higher order mathematics. So not just memorization, but actually application. And so while there was this initial concern about how it was going to change teaching in mathematics, it actually was um, benefited education because there could be the focus on application, not just memorization. And so I think there might be a similar analogy to the use of AI, which is we're going to have to think a little bit differently. It's, you know, students aren't going to have... Um, the focus is really going to be more on the information and not necessarily the, the writing itself. If, if there's a platform that can do really solid writing, um, it may not work at, you know, at higher level classes in um, K-12 or in college. Um, but I think it's going, to, it's going to shift a little bit about to how we teach, but also how we focus on learning. That's a that's a really good point, especially thinking about uh, the gentleman that spoke at the higher ed residency. Um, a couple, a uh, couple months ago or a month ago or so, um, he, I forget his name. I apologize, but he was, um, yeah. talking about, um, AI in, from the perspective of there's like, like epistemologically, there's really no need anymore for this focus on what people know by memory or by rote, like what is, you know, information stored in your brain because we just have access to information all of the time. And so mm -hmm. more about do we understand how to use the information or what questions to ask of the information or how to apply um, theory or greater depths of knowledge to what we know to kind of, um, you know, exploit that into some sort of, uh, ingenuity or uh, innovation. And um, I think that the calculator is a really, a really great um, parallel to AI in that sense, because it's far less about what you can memorize and do quickly on your own and, and far more about how you can outsource that skill and use your brain for the, you know, the greater depth of knowledge or the, the larger applicable theory. So I think that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. The, the, the uh, individual that spoke at our residency is Paula Blanc and he is president of Southern New Hampshire university. And he was invited to speak in the higher ed policy class about innovation. And so that's really how he got on AI. And I think he raises a couple of interesting points. Well, for the first one is this idea about um, epistemology. And to me, that's one of those deeper philosophical questions um, that we need to, I'm not sure, struggle with, but at least discuss. You know, what's what does knowledge creation look like when it's no longer done by by people, where it's done by, um, you know, artificial intelligence that's pulling information from um, from the internet um, over you know a number of years. Um, I'm not sure, you know, where I, you know, if I'm thinking good or bad, but I think there's something to consider. Um, that's certainly an issue in the art world um, in terms of what is creation of art looks like when it's not by a person. Um, right. But I think the, the other element is um, talking about, you know, thinking about higher order learning, you know, if we can have AI, you know, draft um, 
articles that kind of describe issues and things like that, I think it forces students to now focus on higher order learning systems, analysis and critique, because it's clear that um, AI is not always correct because um, it's you know, using data that um, could be biased. It could be um, um, it could be twisted in some way. Um, you know, my use of AI found out that it's not always accurate. And so the somebody writing with AI really needs to be able to think through that, the, that paper or that content and critique it and analyze it to know, is the information correct? Um, if it's not correct, how to correct it? And so I think, you know, to me, that's a higher order learning um, mm-hmm. with analysis and critique than just describing something that's happening or describing some issue, um, you know, whatever the content area is. Um, but we need to be able as teachers and instructors, we need to be able to teach students that um, so they can do that analysis and that critique. But I think it really does push learning in a new way that might not have happened without AI. Yeah, I think that's, true. And I think that's part of why it's such um, of an adaptive challenge is uh, it's really difficult to think about. Like you gave the example of the AI art, which um, there's an art teacher at the high school that I teach at that does a project using AI uh, to create art based on different prompts. And then the students have to ask that AI system certain questions to get the kind of uh, imagery that they want. And it's when uh, this teacher was talking about it in a group of my colleagues the other day, they were asking, well, how can you grade that? How can you grade them on that? That's not their art. And his argument was it is their art because it wouldn't exist without them because they had to think of the questions to ask to get the image they wanted. So it is their art. And, um, you know, of course there there are the people like, no, the traditionalists that were like, art. Art requires, you know, an easel and, and you right. know, yeah. sort of writing utensil or whatever. So um, they were really struggling with that idea of um, thinking of creating differently or their mindset mm-hmm. about what it means to create something. Does it really require you to have the skill to like create the shadow or whatever? And his argument was that it doesn't or it shouldn't and that we've already bent that um, rule with our use of um, different forms of digital technology to create art prior to this. So, um, you know, so his argument was, no, that's not true. And, and, but there was within that circle, um, definitely a a challenge to get people to see creation differently, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is a part of, again, why, that's definitely an adaptive challenge for education to consider. But I think, so I just did this kind of small little case study with my students, Um, all 10th graders. There were um, about 20 English 10 students and uh, 40 humanities 10 students. And I just asked them, we watched uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's video, The Danger of a Single Story. Have you seen that before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have. She's brilliant. And pe- they always find it very powerful. And one of the, or the biggest topic for um, English 10 and Humanities 10 is social issues. So it really heavily applies. And we'd watched it a couple times this year, but we watched it again. And mm-hmm. um, I was like, okay, here's uh, an additional assignment you can do if you're done your other work and you're happy with your grade. But if it was boosted, that'd be lovely. Um, you could do this assignment and apply it to any two of the like 
12 standards that we go through. And because um, it, it could be applied to any. And I said, I want you to answer the prompt with a presentation that you create. And I'm not going to tell you what the content of the presentation can be or what the outline should be or what references you should use. I'm not going to give you any of that information. I'm just going to give you the prompt. And I will tell you that you can use AI and AI exclusively as a research tool initially. So you can go into AI and I showed them some different ways to like ask different questions of um, chat GPT or Snapchat AI. I said, you can ask AI for resources. You can ask them for a sample outline. You can ask them for different examples, but I want you to answer the question for you, what sociological group is in danger of being represented by a single story. Mm -hmm. And then I I don't care what group you do. I don't care if it's a, you know, a race or a gender or an age group or a subculture, whatever you want to do, doesn't matter. That part's up to you. How you want to present that information is up to you. What outline you want to use, what resources you want to use, it's up to you. But I'd like you to find those things on AI. Once you find them, I need you to verify that they are accurate pieces of information. So we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about how AI can be incorrect. In fact, one of my students yeah. uh, looked up lyrics to a um, Taylor Swift song and mm-hmm. AI quoted lyrics to a Taylor Swift song that don't exist. Like it just completely, <laughs> completely yeah. fabricated lyrics to a song that, that aren't real. And so I don't know if it found like some fans song that like mirrored Taylor Swift song or whatever on, on the internet, but it, it totally fabricated a whole thing. So yeah. I was, we have to be really careful and whatever resources or data or information AI gives us, we have to verify that they're true. And then if you've done that and you've verified that, then you can use it in your presentation. You can use it as a resource. And that's all we talked about. And then I explained to them, um, you can't talk to each other because there's no way for me to know if you talk to each other about your presentations, whether other people are influencing how you're building a presentation or if it's AI that's influencing it. So I, I need to separate those variables. So you, you can't talk about it until, you know, both of you are done and you've turned your presentations in. Um, and then you can talk to your friends all you want. And then I said, um, also, I need, you're just going to turn it into me. Like you're just going to turn in a link to the presentation to me. You're not going to actually present it. So I just want to see what you put together. And mm-hmm. they did. And so what I was curious to see was, if it's really not them creating, if if using AI in that way is too much influence from AI, then essentially I'm I'm gonna get a bunch of the same presentation. Mm-hmm. So I was I was curious to see how much variation there would be. And I was surprised to find that there was a tremendous v- amount of variation in content and topic most of the outlines were the same. So the structure of the presentations were very similar. There were a couple that were slightly different, but, uh, or the way the, the student internalized what they meant by the outline came out a little different, but essentially pretty much the same. But the content and the topics were all different. So there were some that were on uh, people based on race or ethnicity that were at danger of um, being represented by a single story. There were some that talked about gender, some that talked about subcultures like 
metal heads and another kid did uh, uh what was it? oh um cooks versus chefs mm. and so um there was a lot of different content and a lot of different even when i had two students that both did people of color the resources that they used were different mm -hmm. so i thought that was really interesting that structurally i kind of got all the same thing but content and topic wise entirely different Hmm. And yeah, it seems like it seems like they you know that's going to be dependent on the prompts that right. the students use, which is then you know um, derived from the way they're thinking or the way they're approaching that assignment. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting. I was wondering, like, I I didn't have time to ask them because they had until the last day of school to turn in their projects. But I'll probably ask them next year how they were asking AI about an outline or structure mm -hmm. um, because whatever they were asking it all, it all like kind of produced the same thing um, yeah. that, or we've just really ingrained in them so deeply because everything was kind of set up like an MLA formatted five paragraph essay, but in slides. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, now I'm not sure if it was us or was AI that was like, this is how you structure a presentation. But um yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. And um, I'm to me, that means that there's uh, a level of, like an intense level of um, individuality and distinctive work, even when mm -hmm. supported by AI. Mm -hmm. But um, they, they brought up a lot of really great points about AI that I didn't know in terms of the idea of, like deterrence to cheating. And they talked about how um, AI really struggles with anything from the last 12 months. So yep. if you want to assign a, which is what I've been doing this year, how I've been modifying my assignments this year. If you want to um, produce something, but you need to relate it to something that's happened in the last 12 months, AI really struggles. Right. Yeah, because it's not trained on those on those on that data. So that's one thing that people forget. They think that AI is pulling from current the current internet, um, but ChatGPT is is based on um, training data from the internet previous to the last twelve months. So the current things are not going to be in there. Um, but I, I don't know if folks necessarily realize that, and so that would be one strategy to use. But also thinking about um, critiquing and analyzing um, AI output, it, it would be helpful for users to know that as well. That's why some of that content would be missing. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like, you know, in the future, if AI is going to be able to pull from current, um, the current internet, I, I would suppose so at some point. Um, but right now, it's based on training data that was pre, you know, before that, because that's what OpenAI used for ChatGPT. I'm, I'm curious to see when they can modify that so that it can pull current or up-to-date information because mm. when I, like especially when I was reading power and prediction so much of what he was talking about was really focused on how whenever there's a technological advancement if it's cheaper faster more accurate or more efficient then then it's going to be employed in some way, because that's mm -hmm. the nature of, you know, commerce in our country is such that if you find something that's cheaper, faster, effective, more accurate, then there's a desire for it on the market. Um, 
regardless of like, I think he gives that example of um, radiology and how I think he said there was like 20 different tasks that a radiologist could do, but AI could only mimic two of them. But for those two, it's significantly more accurate and efficient. So uh, to some extent it will be employed and replace like some portion of that job as a light, like the other example he gave with the uh, COVID protein strains that for three years they were trying to find the exact protein strain and then, and then AI did it in 30 minutes. So Mm -hmm. there's just no way that we won't use it if we can get that level of efficiency. But if chat GPT can't access anything from the last 12 months, and we always in education lately are pushing to relate our knowledge and our understanding to modern issues, then it's less effective. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I'm not a computer scientist, but I think the the big things that to think about is that it, um, artificial intelligence is a large language model. So it uses a lot of information and then predicts, um, makes predictions using that information. And then I think related are the, is machine learning. So where actually machines can teach themselves how to learn. So I think once the, the integration of machine learning and artificial intelligence becomes a little bit closer, then I think the AI is going to be able to teach itself through machine learning and then be able to pull from existing internet data. So it can be constantly updating and learning from that. I just don't know if um, if it's at that point yet, but I can't imagine it's going to take long to get to that point where artificial intelligence can pull from current information. And I think that's part of the, that's part of the challenge about why AI can't produce sources um, for a lot of the information is because it's not pulling from the current internet. You know, when I think about some of the, when I first, you know, started um, trying out AI just to see how it worked, I had it um, define and describe um, equity-centered assessment in higher education, which is my scholarship area. Yeah. And it did a really good summary, but I said, give me 10 sources. And it gave me the source. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard of these. I'm going to have to go check these out. Yeah. And then they didn't exist. And so, and that's when I realized it was predicting oh, really? what, what <laughs> sources would be, but it can't pull actual sources. So I actually even asked that. I said, I want an actual source. In the, and chat GPT said, I can't produce an actual source. I can produce a sample. And I'm yeah. like, okay, that's a huge limitation, at least from a scholarship perspective, but also for anything else. You know, there yeah. it's going to be difficult for students to write and source papers if they can't, if, if if AI can't produce those sources. So it can provide some summary information, but it's not going to be able to source that. And so, to me, that's a huge limitation for AI. But also, and you know, it, it's a stopgap um, for teachers to know. Uh, you know, students are going to be able to use this to some extent, but when we require students to source all of their content, um, then that there's going to be a, AI can only do so much there. So when I was asking them to source um, for whatever data or research they use to suggest um, that, you know, their particular group, their sociological group was at danger of being represented by a single story, they were giving me sources and they did say they got them from chat GPT and they, and they were legitimate, but I will tell you when I, so the very first thing I did <laughs> when I heard about chat GPT for the first time was I immediately typed in, provide a list of sources or, or provide a list of research um, 
canon type research on and then I just put in my dissertation topic. So I was like provide a list of sources for student driven student voice and leadership or you know mm-hmm. equity for students in education or whatever. And um and it popped out a bunch of things that I didn't recognize and mm-hmm. Then I like wrote them all down there on a list somewhere in the world. And, but I never went and looked them up because I got sidetracked yeah. moments later. So I wonder if those things would have come up. I do know that I did not recognize them. Like it didn't yeah. have anything that I would consider a part of the canon for that. So I, right. I was surprised by that. Um, and then yeah. I panicked a little bit and I was like, oh my God, maybe I need these people in my, <laughs> maybe I need yeah. I don't even have these people in there. But now I'm kind of glad I didn't spend a whole lot of time finding those people on that list because maybe it was not super accurate. Maybe it was more predictive. Yeah, Yeah, Um, I think that's the case. I I think also one of the things that they talked, my students talked about is the use of other software to determine whether or not students are cheating and for the most part, the newer software that's come out, I, I don't think is great, except um, Draftback. I've been using mm-hmm. that on students' papers that I get that I'm like, this does not sound like their voice or their style of writing. Um, and Draftback is kind of nice because it can show the exact <laughs> amount of time spent on each portion. Like when, So if it's like you said you wrote a paper, but it only took you three minutes probably you did not write a paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but the kids have already found a way to circumnavigate that. So they'll get um, their AI on one computer and then they'll just type it out on the other one. So it looks like they typed. <laughs> Another thing that they're doing um, is they've all showed me how you can circumnavigate chat GPT zero, which is the software that looks at yeah. Uh, language to see if it's likely produced by AI. And mm-hmm. all you have to do is ask it to do two things after it writes a paper for you. And it won't come up in chat GPT zero as AI produced anymore. All you have to hmm. do is you just ask it to um, change the language to less formal and to put in like three, they said, I think the first thing they did was they said, make, the paper or uh, rewrite the paper with less formal language. And then they said, rewrite the paper with three grammatical errors. And (laughs) zero couldn't recognize it anymore. It was like, this is likely written by a human. Yeah. It didn't even highlight any part. Like I thought at least I would get partially by AI, partially by a human. And there would Mm -hmm. be like some highlights in yellow where it thought it might be more AI. No, it didn't recognize it as AI at all. Just based on those two things. Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting because that's a source that a lot of people in education are using right now to try to determine like what is what's real and what's not real that kids are producing. And then the other thing, I had another teacher tell me that she's working to like look up her prompts in AI on ChatGPT and see if. Um, students turn in work that's similar in structure or style or rhetoric. And I was like, don't waste your time because there are so many versions of, um, you know, uh, the same kind of LLM uh, AI software. You'll, you won't, you just won't have the time to look at them all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Try to, you know, try to 
recognize the rhetoric of each one. So she didn't realize that. So that was a bummer for her. And mm-hmm. uh, also the students informed me, which I didn't know this before, Snapchat AI, which they said is the one that's most commonly used by students, is on the Snapchat software, on the app, and you cannot get rid of it. So there's like a little, at the top of your list of people yeah. you snap, there's Snapchat AI, and you cannot remove it as a contact. It just mm. stays there permanently. Interesting. So I was wondering what you think about that, because that, that struck a chord with me. In, in terms of not being able to get, a, get rid of the AI, Snapchat AI as a co- contact? Yeah. yeah, for some reason, I think a little uncomfortable that first of all, you don't like it just automatically load, like it, it just updated on the app automatically. So it went out to every kid with Snapchat and it was, you could, it was not removable, which feels mm-hmm. only because I will tell you as a, as a bias, I have a real negative feeling towards Snapchat overall as a teacher. And I've recorded data several times in my classroom for 60 minutes where I take 10 to 12 students. They turn their ringers on on their phone. Every time they get an alert on their phone or a notification, we record it and we record what kind. And by far, without a doubt, the most pervasive every single time I've run this has been Snapchat. And on average, students in my class get a Snapchat notification every two seconds. Wow. That means every two seconds as a teacher, I am competing with that app that's attempting to grab my students' attention. Mm-hmm. And while we have policies in school to put your phones away and don't have your phones out, it really makes very little difference anymore because a lot of them have smart watches or they have an AirPod in and you don't even notice. And so there's ways to get to them above and beyond just their phones. I also don't really subscribe to the notion that having them remove their phones entirely is an effective way to combat this issue in the classroom. I think it's mm-hmm. much better if we try to teach them to moderate their time through different forms of technology and, and try to redirect and refocus just because I don't think it's sustainable that someone will constantly be standing over their shoulder telling them to not look at their phone. So yeah. I think it's much smarter in the long run that we teach them how to, how to use their time wisely and, and redirect themselves. But I, I have run that study several times and Snapchat is so incredibly pervasive. And I think mm-hmm. it's part of that structure, like the dopamine hit that they get from somebody in their peer group wanting to talk to them or whatever. I think it's partly that, although that can be done with text messaging too. And so I'm not sure exactly what it is about Snapchat, but it's so intense among this generation of students, the use of Snapchat is their primary app use on their phones. And the fact that they've laid over top of that, a form of AI that they cannot redirect themselves from, like it's, it's persistent. I just thought was kind of sneaky, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. At least I feels a little underhanded by Snapchat. Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure what I think about that, honestly, because we're using AI all the time. Anytime we search on Google, you know, it's undergirded by AI. I think it's going to be, you know, anybody who has an iPhone has Siri accessible. Do you choose to use it or not? 
that's you know up to the user. I don't I don't because I just easier for me to type in things sometimes. Right. Um, so I think it's going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be built into every application we we use. You know, I was just I got an um, an alert on Spotify last week that AI is now b- built into Spotify. Um, I had to look up some images um, from um, for a presentation on Shutterstock, and AI is built into Shutterstock now. And so I think it's going to be built into everything. But so I think. As you mentioned, it's really about teaching people how to do this. You know, and even though students are having these notifications all the time, that's still that's an issue for everybody. You know, I turn notifications off, so I don't get those notifications all the time. So it's really about, you know, as you mentioned, teaching students how to use their time appropriately and teaching folks that, you know, if you get these constant notifications, it's distracting. And so mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to focus on things. You know, I guess my biggest bigger concern for students is will they be able to develop that ability to focus um, that many yeah. of us who didn't have social media, we, we, we were able to build that up earlier because we didn't have social media. I think that's going to be a bigger challenge for, um, for students and young folks now is because they're, they're in this world with social media and get notifications from all these different apps. Um, what is the impact of that? So I don't know if it's necessarily AI specifically. I think it's just this broader issue about social media or even email. You know, if people have their notifications on. They're getting dings every time they get a text message or an email, you know, unless they turn those off. So it's really more about this bigger issue about concentration and focus. Um, but I think we have to get used to the fact that AI is going to be built into every application that we use. You know, um, it's, it's being built into to Microsoft products now. And so it's just going to be part of the way we live, um, just like other um, other platforms and other technology has been um, kind of filtered it through and been integrated into our lives in multiple ways. Oh, I, th- I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think there's no avoiding it at this point, which I know I had um, sent you a message about, or I had included in my email some questions about the relationship between AI and, and the capitalist structure of our of our economy. And what I really was getting at, although I was long-winded and wrote the longest question of my entire life, but what I, what I was trying to write into one question, which was just more complicated than that, was the idea that I think there's no way that we will avoid uh, the incorporation and integration of AI into education in, in a completely holistic way, just in every yeah. aspect of what we do. Um, and I, I definitely see that for the future. I, I also am concerned to some extent when I think of my students, when it's almost to me, like you have these students that you're trying to, you're trying to give skills to, you're trying to, uh, help them build their way of thinking about their learning and their understanding of, especially at the high school level, these broader topics, and you want them to really internalize what they're learning and, and how they're understanding it. And you want them to, you know, go deep with that information and, and create things that are unique or thoughtful. And then it's almost like following someone on a diet around with a brownie that you're just like holding next to their face. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. here, you can have this if you want to in any moment. And I don't know as though they really are at a level of executive functioning where they're very good at being like, nope, I'm all set. I'm okay. Thank you. I have yeah. you. I'm good. You know, I don't, right. I don't, I don't think they're there. 
from my just from my perspective, from my um, experience with the fourteen to nineteen year old age range for yeah. several years now, I, it's that's really hard for them. And I do think there is some level of responsibility on the people who create apps and who create software that is heavily targeted towards younger people to know that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to because they make a lot of money off of it. <laughs> and that's always the yeah. goal is to make big profits. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to see like an ethical strain of capitalism come out in regards to this particular topic. But I, I do think that that's like really a part of the big battle when we look at this as like an adaptive challenge. I think we have to, I think both things at the same time, I think we have to incorporate it into what we're doing. I think we have to teach students about how to use it responsibly and appropriately to, um, you know, engage themselves and also enhance their learning but I think that at the same time, we we're really it's a it's a big battle to go against yeah. because they are they're just so inundated. Like even I was watching the other day that uh, a YouTube video in the Grammarly AI. There's a new um, ad for the Grammarly AI, and it's mm-hmm. like it's, it's <laughs> first of all, it's the creepiest ad I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> It's such a like AI um, future dystopian voice <laughs> that Grammarly uses for their their software, but it's heavily marketed towards students and specifically really young students who need a paper and they need it quickly and they don't have the skills to get the grade they want. And mm-hmm. so that was really interesting to see. In fact, the YouTube ad is so intense that my uh, my roommate is hates it deeply she makes she makes me cast it every time it comes on just because it is really kind of creepy um but i can see as a younger student being really like that really appealing to me if i had you know things do it once and also i have track practice and also you know what i mean like i can see that being something that unless you have some pretty strong executive functioning that your impulse would be to just click it and do it because you you know and even its ability um, to converse naturally is incredible, even though it sounds like Hal. It's not, it sounds really creepy, yeah. but its ability to converse naturally in content and to analyze sentiment was crazy from that ad. If that's truly how it works, it was really intense. And yeah. so I thought that was really interesting um, and also a little bit scary, but I also at the same time think that it's really important that we work on it. So I, I don't know. I feel yeah. really conflicted about those things. And then um, that resource that you sent that was talking about the challenges of AI and it brought up AI hallucinations, which I hadn't read about yet. Mm-hmm. Did you, do you know anything about that? No, I don't remember that one. So um, there's, uh, in one of the resources that you sent me that you were using in your class with students right now, it talked about AI hallucinations, which we've kind of referenced already a little bit, but it's when AI creates content from nothing. So without like being able to pinpoint where did AI come up with this or what um, what resource did it go to? What did it access to create this response? It's just creating on its own. And they mm. call it an AI hallucination that it doesn't link okay. 
anything that they can that they can make sense of. It's just filling in content where it's missing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I think is a part of like what happened when my student was looking up uh, Taylor Swift lyrics. <laughs> Taylor Swift lyrics. Yeah. Lyrics that don't exist. Um, I think that's a part of AI hallucination, and I think I'm going to talk about that in my classes a lot more. So that students really understand that this is not an easy fix. This is not necessarily um, going to give you something that will get you a solid grade or make it look like you know what you're talking about because it may not know what it's talking about. Well, and I think that's where helping folks realize that um, AI is prediction. And so my guess is for that Taylor Swift um, song – that it was pulling from t- existing Taylor Swift l- lyrics and then predicting what a Taylor Swift song lyrics would be. And so I think, you know, I think we just need to educate folks that it's predicting based on existing information, not necessarily pulling existing information. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's that it sometimes does, but there's some, there's that subtle difference. So I think, you know, adding that disclaimer as we talk about the use of AI would be helpful. I think that's that's true. And I'm hoping to come up with over the summer some more examples to show in my classroom of when AI is being predictive in a way that could kind of get you in trouble if you were trying to use it as a you know a valid source. Um I know that despite the fact that when I ran my little case study with my 10th graders, despite the fact that I specifically said you cannot cite AI. AI does not do research or publish research. AI makes predictions based on the content it finds on the internet. So you can't cite it. It's not a resource. Mm. Um, Despite saying that and explaining what the difference was between citing something that's been published and vetted and peer reviewed and citing, you know, AI software, my, I had several students still cite AI. They could not uh, differentiate between what that, like, what does that mean? Well, um, actually, both MLA and APA have um, have d- provided examples how to cite AI. Well, I and think, I, that- think the, I think the reason they do that is so that it distinguishes between what the writer created versus what was created by artificial intelligence. Okay. So I think that essentially, <laughs> essentially it's it's what what is allowing the writer to say is I did not create this; it was created by AI. So. They're, okay. they're, you know, AI, AI is the source, yeah. but it helps distinguish from what the writer themselves wrote. And so it provides that differentiation. So not, not like this is AI as like a source of um, data or research that's meant to support my claim, but more like this is a thing that AI wrote and I didn't write this. Correct. You know, so I think about, you know, it's particularly the APA. For APA, the different types of um, sources are formatted differently. So, for example, a YouTube video is, you know, listed as a video. Um, Blogs are um, listed as blogs. Um, Conference papers are listed as conference papers to help the readers differentiate from those different types of sources, which are not necessarily, some may be peer reviewed, some may not. Um, some may be editorial reviewed, some may not. You know, a blog post isn't, re- is, isn't edited at all or isn't reviewed, you know, and distinguish that from a journal article. So that there is, there are different types of sources, but each source has um, um, more 
more or less uh, validity based on the review process. Okay. So that makes more sense to me. Um, and I can see why that would be, that would be necessary. I just was hope like for a second, you almost broke my heart a little. <laughs> I was like, we're not putting AI in our resources. Yeah. But yes, that makes sense. And obviously, yeah. like, you know, you have, you know, uh, interview factor data from an interview right. that doesn't hold as much weight as a factor piece of data from a peer-reviewed article. So, yeah, I get that. That makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just a different way. To, it's, just, it's a way to demonstrate that the, the information did not come from the writer. Right. It came from some other place. And then to distinguish between different sources because all sources are not equally valid. Well, then maybe next time I posit this particular uh, prompt, I will let them do that <laughs> with an MLA. Well, and, I think, they, and, and I think that'd be good because it teaches students that they, they should be citing anything that it's not their own um, writing or thinking. And, and I think it helps, helps frame that, that, Information comes from a lot of different places. Um, and so even Wikipedia, that should be cited. You know, anything from the web should be cited because it's not that it's not the writer's um, original writing or thinking. So I, I, I totally agree with you. And we go like this, especially in 10th grade, for some reason, I've been blessed with this particular um, focus and what we do in 10th grade um, ELA and humanities. But we talk to them pretty extensively about how what is the difference between what are my own words? What are other people's words? What is plagiarism? What, what exactly does plagiarism look like? What is paraphrasing versus direct quoting? And like, how do we get down to the, the nitty gritty of making sure that everything is given? Um, you know, it's, it's just due. So if like, this is not your percentage that you're putting in here, you have to say who found this percentage or who gathered right. this. And we go through that pretty extensively. It's still tough for them. I had a student that turned into me a 100% AI produced paper. And it's probably one of the only ones I've ever gotten that I copied and pasted two paragraphs into chat GPT zero. And they and it came up immediately produced entirely by AI. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I called her in and I said, I need to talk to you about this. I said, you know, you copied and pasted this whole paper off some form of AI. And she was like, yes. And I said, okay. <laughs> I was yeah. like, you, I said, you're, you're going to have to redo it. And we need to have a, a talk about what that means and why you would want to produce work this way rather than telling. It was a, a paper on um, a book that she was reading for her independent uh, Roman choice reading unit. She was reading uh, On the Come Up by Angie Thomas. And I said, um, this is incredible work. I was like, but it's not yours. What I would love to hear is or read is your writing on what you're reading here, like your thoughts mm -hmm. on, on this paper. And um, she said, okay. And then she took it and she turned it back in. And <laughs> I went on to, I love Google for this very reason, but I went on the uh, version history on Google to see what mm -hmm. happened because it kind of looked like the exact same paper. And all she had done is just gone through and changed certain words to words that she would use instead. So yeah. I called, I called her back in and I said, this is not, this isn't what I meant. <laughs> I want your own writing. So just going through and, and changing words to synonyms or phrases to words or words to phrases, 
that are more common in in the way that you would write does not the paper make <laughs> like this is really mm -hmm. really chaotic work. It took her a very long time to wrap her head around that, and she's still hundred mm -hmm. percent sure she's on board with what I'm saying. But um, yeah. she really in doing that like that was that was fine, that was accurate, and then the the line began to blur where she said, well. If I ask AI this question and it gives me this content and then I read the content and, and write it how I would have would have said it, then it's just, then it's my work. And I said, it's not. I see what you're saying, <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. It's some it needs to be incorporated into your own work. But if the sentence structure is the same, like her microcosm, macrocosm view of her work was just like completely blurred. And she couldn't, mm -hmm. she couldn't see the difference. And um, I think that happens really commonly with students and it, it's going to take a long time to flush out exactly what those differences are. Um, and, but at the same time, I also, what I wanted to talk to you about is the, um, the equity portion of using AI. Mm -hmm. uh, especially in assessment mm -hmm. and um, like in terms of automated grading systems, um, whether or not those reduce bias or increase bias. Um, I'm, I'm curious about that because I see a lot of potential for equity building in AI mm -hmm. and especially for students with large learning gaps which post COVID is a lot of students. Um, yeah. But I also like, I also see potential for, for an increase in bias. So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that or, or like where, how you see um, the integration of AI in assessment as either equity building or equity crushing? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a huge opportunity um, to use AI for assessment grading, you know, assessment student learning and grading. Um, so I've, um, you know, one of the examples that would, that came up in some of the higher education listservs was actually using a um, AI to grade a paper using a rubric, and I tested it out on some uh, doctoral uh, student papers, and it was really effective. And what that 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 um, you know the, what that made me think about is. Think about, I would save a lot of time. Um, so that's a benefit. And so it allows, it would allow the, you know, the instructor to spend more time on the personalized feedback. Because I think as instructors, we spend a lot of time grading to the rubric, which is helpful, but still that's, that's kind of a, that's blunt feedback for students. And so if we could have AI do that type of grading, and then we can focus on some of more of the the personalized qualitative feedback that makes an instructor's job a little bit easier. And we can spend more time on the qualitative feedback rather than on the more, the broader, what I might call quantitative feedback in the, in the, um, that's produced by rubric. So that helps address some equity issues because we can focus on that personalized learning. The other thing that I think the, the, the other benefit is, is that research suggests that, um, that instructors are biased based on students' identities. 
You know, we know that black students and brown students are graded lower on the on the exact same papers if the instructor knows their identities. Now, of course, that doesn't happen with with all instructors, but that there's this implicit bias that's built in. Um, I believe there's still there's some research regarding gender as well. But if that rubric is put into AI and AI does that grading, that can remove some of that implicit bias. Now, the challenge, though, is how biased is the rubric itself? You know, so what we need to do as instructors is figure out how to make sure the, the rubrics that we're using are unbiased and perhaps even the prompts we're giving for writing the papers, because um, you know, as a lot of writers have suggested, AI is still, it's computer generated and it's based on what users have put into that. So whatever the algorithm is, that's produced by people. And so same thing if it's grading on a rubric, it's grading on a rubric that's produced by a person. Um, the prompt is, you know, is written by a person. And so the AI can be used for the assessment and the grading and help reduce bias. But we still need to think about what bias is happening in the production of those, um, the writing prompts or the assignment prompts, and then the rubric itself. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity, but we still need to be cautious and and consider what's what's the bias element going in, which is exactly the big issue with with AI in general. It's it's built on biased data. And so um, we just need to think about how to do that. Now, a great opportunity with AI is to actually have AI you know, review and analyze the rubric or the assignment and, and, and ask it, you know, to what extent is this biased? You know, I, I did a, I'm, um, I did a similar, um, not necessarily experiment, but uh, uh, did some similar work with AI just a couple of weeks ago because I'm developing a course for teaching and learning in higher education that's gonna, that I'm going to teach in the fall. And I wanted to have AI outline all of the major policies in, in higher education. You know, what were the ones that really changed higher education? And it did that. Um, I had to have, um, it missed some things. For example, um, it talked about the, the Morrill Act, um, which was what the, the federal legislation that created all the land grant institutions, but it didn't include the second Morrill Act, which is what created the um, HBCUs, the historically black um, colleges and universities, which to me was a huge equity issue. So fortunately, I knew that and had that built it in, built in. But then after all, after I, all of those policies were listed, and it didn't seem like any major ones are missing, I actually had a um, Chat GPT write a three hundred uh, word paper on how those policies either supported or perpetuated oppression, and it actually did an interesting critique of that. So I think there is a possibility of using AI to do some analysis and critique of the rubrics and the assignment prompts that we're using to see if there, you know, it's, there's some implicit bias in there. So I think there's a lot of opportunities, but yet like anything else, we have to, you know, take that with a grain of salt. We can't just say, yep, it did a great job. We need to do some analysis and critique on our own. That makes sense. I, I was interested um, in one of the resources you sent, they talked about, uh, the increase of two standard deviations for students who are using AI as like a personal tutor. Yep. And um, I thought how equ- how equitable for students who can't afford tutoring or students who uh, tutoring is like not logistically possible. They live too rurally yep. or whatever um, to have this like, 
this way of accessing that kind of uh, an increase in their um, their educational experience and uh, and their learning, like that to me seems like a gigantic game changer, you know, for oh. for students yeah, that come totally. from low socioeconomic status or um, yep. you know any, any of the other uh, social sociological identifying markers that that create mm-hmm. inequity for students. So I thought that was, that was really powerful piece. Oh of yeah. Data. There are, there's, yeah, there's certainly opportunities to address equity issues through AI aside from, um, from assessment. Um, Sal Khan, who created the Khan Academy had a, a Ted talk that was just, I think posted April or May. So very recently. And essentially what he's doing is demoing the, the, um, personal tutor that they have using AI. And it's yeah, amazing how, how it I can think, personalize the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I think you sent me that video. That's the one with, he was talking about the clouds, like the student that put in coding yeah. to move one cloud to the left and then was just able to ask, why isn't the other cloud moving to the right? And then, and then not only was um, the tutoring AI through Khan asking, you know, explaining what, the student was doing wrong, but it was also asking them to explain their thinking so they could break yeah. down where their thinking was going wrong. That was incredible to see. Like that's right. what we go, that's what we shoot for in education all the time is to just keep asking them to reprocess what they're doing until they see what they're doing wrong. So right. I thought that was really, I thought that was really powerful. Um, yeah. That whole video was really powerful. Yeah. And you know, when you mentioned about, you know, different socioeconomic groups, even, you know, think about, urban schools that have, you know, large classes for instructors who can't provide that personalized feedback. You know, this is a a great opportunity for that. And so I think, you know, there are going to be a lot of um, potential developments that can support and further equity um, Mm -hmm. through AI. But again, we just have to keep, you know, be cautious of that and, you know, keep critiquing that and keep asking the question, you know, in what way is this bias or what way can this um, perpetuate um, inequities? Um, but I think there's opportunity that we haven't been able to provide otherwise because of resources or time or whatever else, you know, may exist to hinder our ability to provide that that, that kind of feedback. Absolutely. I th- And when you were saying um, the, the notion of AI is inherently biased um, because it's built off of um, information that was created by humans, resources that were written by humans, and humans are inherently biased. So then, mm-hmm. there's no way to avoid that. But I think yeah. um, if AI can correct itself, can I forget the term that um, you used for that? But it like self monitors and rewrites yeah. based on its own evaluation of its uh, of its inequity. That's really powerful. Yeah, so that's and it really, you know, so it's based on machine learning. So that's going to take somebody to write in to the code to the algorithm to continue continue to check for bias and what would that checking for bias look like? Um, but mm-hmm. I think there is that ability to do that. Do you? So something that I see struggling, a teacher struggling with, um, kind of at the public education level is this idea that if if AI can uh, create content or create a content outline or a curriculum map or it can create assessments or it can uh, grade assessments, mm. 
what are we doing? <laughs> what yeah. are we doing? Um, do you hear people talking about that a lot? Yeah, that's come up in the higher ed listservs and and everything I've read is pretty much it, it can support teaching, but it's not going to be able to replace teachers. And so because of that, you still need people to make those to make those judgments, to make those analyses. You know, I think there's an opportunity for, you know, I've actually had AI create, you know, an outline for a lecture. Um, I've had um, I guess there's AI that can actually create PowerPoint slides and things like that, but still somebody has to analyze them. Does it make sure that's the right content or it's, um, it's providing the content in a way that's accessible or um, at the developmental level um, for that, for the greatest student. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to support teaching so that teachers can spend their time on more complex tasks. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think about the ability of AI to, um, to explain a complex topic or um, issue in multiple ways to help multiple students. So that's a, as, as an instructor, that saves me a ton of time. You know, if I can actually have AI explain this concept in three different ways, that's really helpful because then I can focus on other things. Again, I focus on more of that one-on-one -on -one, um, student interaction then creating the lesson plan or creating those explanations. And, but still somebody has got to, somebody has got to write the prompts for AI to do that. Yeah. That's a great point. Actually. That's uh, that's such a, it sometimes feels like such a conspicuous um, time suck to have to teach the yeah. same, like five different ways just so that we get to everybody. Um, and it feels like it's likely frustrating for some people who got it on time one or time two, and now we're on time five. So I think that um, that's a really good point. That's something that as teachers, we struggle with a lot or we wish we could do more of, but just due to logistical time constraint, there's never quite enough. Um, or, or even think about, you know, I've actually been on a webinar where there's some concepts I didn't understand. So I typed them into AI and the chat GPT and I got an answer. And so that allowed me to follow along on the webinar because there were some concepts I didn't understand. So imagine, imagine giving students that ability to do that. So the instructor doesn't have to necessarily explain things multiple times because students can actually get a different explanation on their own as they're following along. And or so like there's, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, uh, so I think there's just a lot of potential there. Yeah. Like imagine if students had some kind of AI software in their hands that they, when they were listening to a lecture, the AI software was um, keyed into academic or formal language or conceptual or theoretical language that was more abstract or less commonly used. And every time, you know, that language was used, a little, you know, button popped up that you could click on it for further explanation so that you could keep following along with the conversation. That would be huge. Right. Yep. So a lot of opportunity. You know, and I think about, you know, the will AI ever replace teachers? Teachers know their students, you know, and we all know our, our students are different each year. The you know, even the, the skills and knowledge of individual students or the, you know, the, the group of students is different. And so AI is not going to be able to adapt all that unless somebody puts in that information, which is going to be impossible. So that's why the teacher is still always going to be the facilitator or the guide, even if they are leveraging AI to help support the, the teaching process.
Yeah, that's a good point. So um, I just want to, before we wrap up, I want to relate back this uh, topic is an, uh, an adaptive challenge in education where it will require people to change the way they think about things or their mindset about um, how we learn or how we assess or what it means to create or whatever. Um, I want to talk about these adaptive challenges in relationship to um, Bowman and Deal's theories of organizational structures, because I think that's a really helpful theoretical framework for understanding uh, how to create change, especially uh, adaptive challenge change solutions um, mm-hmm. inside of an organization. And um, the the four lenses through which Bowman and Deal look at adaptive challenges and organizations are through either the uh, structural lens, which is the lens of understanding the organization is kind of like a, a, a warehouse or a manufacturing, like a factory. So this is, this is how they do what they do, the logistical, how they do what they do, how they create things. Uh, it's the tools, it's the agendas, the, the timing, everything. And then there's a second frame that's the human resources frame or lens, which is more like the family dynamic of an organization and how people relate to each other. And then they have a political lens, which is this idea of um, viewing an organization kind of like the hierarchical structure of a jungle. So you have you know certain levels of power and influence within an organization. And then lastly, their fourth frame is their um, symbolic frame, which is their idea of the the mission or the vision. It's like the temple of an organization. Why are we doing what we're doing? And uh, every adaptive challenge applies to at least one, but often a lot of those lenses. Um, My cohort and I even posited that there may be a fifth lens or frame, which we call the eudaimonia frame, which is more... Our, our symbol for that or our, um, our way of looking at the eudaimonia frame is it's kind of like the tuning fork of an organization. It's how well things are working together with synergy to be productive and positive and effective. So um, when I think of AI as an adaptive challenge, I think the structural frame is the most obvious because mm-hmm. of points, like it's a point solution in a lot of ways. But that's that's the easiest way to use it. That's the most obvious way to use it is a point solution in the structural frame to change how we do what we do, you know, in different ways. So I'm I'm curious to see what you think about this as an adaptive challenge from either the human resources frame or the political frame or the symbolic frame or even the eudaimonia frame. Hmm. Yeah, I have to think about that a little bit more. You know, I think it applies to, it can apply to each of those other ones. I think primarily the structural element of it. But I also think about this can you apply more holistically. And so mm-hmm. when we think about all four or perhaps even all five frames together, how can AI help address organizational leadership and change more broadly? Um, mm-hmm. Because even when I think, look at the structural frame, it's really kind of, it's, 
it does seem more like a point solution where it's you know it's it's addressing one small piece of it but not looking at the broader organization because if we really want to think about organizational change you know and you and I've kind of talked about this is that you know education in the United States is built on a on an industrial model it's not even post industrial so it's right. not serving the needs of our students that's what i think that's part of the reason why we have a lot of these inequitable outcomes because particularly in K12 education we move students along along this path that we assume is developmentally appropriate based on their age. Um, and we know that that's not, it's not the best model to do that. We need more personalized, individualized learning. It's, there are certainly opportunities with AI around that. But our, our overall structure and our organizations within education aren't built to address that. And so can AI be used as more of a, um, a systems level um, solution to really take a look at all of these frames together and move organizations differently. You know, so I think about, we have this pretty set way of thinking about education. You know, a teacher or an instructor is also typically giving information. Um, students are sometimes are typically regurgitating that, you know, hopefully there's this facilitation of their own thinking. But again, in any class, we're Teach, trying to teach to all students, but we're not really able to do that personalized learning. You know, oftentimes it's teaching towards the middle. You know, we can try to do a little bit of help on those, the outside of the normal curve, but it's, it's not that possible. But what if AI could really turn education on its head to think about providing this, um, this personalized learning where there's still this instructor guiding that about what's, what would that personalized learning with, look within a particular content area or for, you know, developmentally at a, you know, for, um, for individuals at a particular developmental level and use those personal assistance, use personalized learning through online modules supported through uh, teacher interventions to do some more of that individualized learning. Imagine mm-hmm. how that would really help us further growth for each individual student and not just try to get all students beyond a threshold. Now, we certainly want all of our students to hit some threshold for learning so they can move on to the next class or move on to the next topic. But not everybody's starting at the same place. And so growth is really what we want to focus on, you know, mm-hmm. and be able to, for the students that are at the high end, we don't want to just give them a little bit of growth because we're teaching towards the mean. We want to have them be, you know, have bigger growth, which we try to do with honors classes and things like that. But we can think about that on the for students who might be on the lower end of skills or knowledge within a particular area. And then the movement is towards learning and not just the, you know, to me, then the grading doesn't matter because right. we're not grading in this very generic way. And to mm-hmm. me, grades don't mean anything. They don't. They don't signify learning. They just signify that, that students have got a satisfactory grade on some assignment. You know, and then when we even move into higher education where the, the credits are based on seat time, which doesn't connect to learning at all, if we can move towards this idea of credentialing specific learning based on personalized learning modules, that would really flip education on, on its head. But still, it has to be guided by people who understand learning, who understand education. So teachers and educational leaders still need to exist, but the delivery method would change dramatically. And so Mm -hmm. it would be more than even a point solution 
or an application solution as the authors of Power and Prediction talk about. It would be a systems level um, solution because it really changed how we think about education. That's where the real opportunity is. And so I think it, we really need to think about all of those frames at, at a system level um, if we're really going to want to leverage the opportunity of artificial intelligence in education. So I completely agree in where I see this aligning tremendously with the the framework, the theoretical framework from Bowman and Deal is within the symbolic frame of why are we doing this? Like, why are we here? What's the goal? What's our mission? What's our vision? How do we see education? What's our hope for students? Where are we trying to go? Um, I think, and I know that um, they talk about this a lot in Power and Prediction, but based off of the fact that education is this traditional institution that's been around for a very long time. And we know that when there's new technological advancement and system change that newer companies or brand new companies do the best. Um, I think that education has to really consider changing that symbolic frame or um, looking at this as an adaptive challenge in that lens and rethinking the mission and the vision of why they're there. And mm-hmm. that might mean something as big as who cares about grades? Why do grades even matter? Right. Yeah. And how do we, how do we throw that out? But that uh, subsequently affects the political frame of looking at education as an organization, because there are large, powerful, influential players in public education in the U S that only care about whether or not that number in terms of grading is moving and if it's moving in a positive direction. And that's the metric by which, and I know there's like a a push to move away from that, but there is still a predominant portion of education that sees that as the most important thing. Like, are we increasing those SAT scores? Are we, you know, are we doing better in terms of our comparison to, um, you know, other countries and where they rank in terms of, you know, standardized assessments. So it would also take um, a system change within that political frame of considering what, who, who's most influential, who's most powerful, who gets to decide what our focus is. Um, and if we give that level of equity and autonomy to students, that that level of personalized education, have we changed the hierarchy in the frame? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we will have. I also believe that when we give kids more equity and autonomy, it improves our human resources frame, but that's mm-hmm. just my opinion. So I think where kids find equity and autonomy, voice, space, influence, they are happier. They treat people better. They feel more represented and valued. So um, I think oh, I think that every frame comes into play with this particular mm-hmm. issue. Um, and I think that they they are kind of inextricably linked in that if you change one thing, it's going to affect the others. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. And so but I think first and foremost, that symbolic frame or lens, that uh, mission or vision of education is the most the most crucial to reconsider. Mm-hmm. And I think it would take, like you were saying, a whole 
system solution, like a whole breakdown of how we look at public education and restructure that with a different uh, mission or vision in mind. Well, and that, that kind of wraps us back to my first comment when we started is about this focus on cheating as the primary issue with AI. And so, right. because that's just our understanding. So until we change that symbolic frame, the way people think about the possibilities with AI, we can't even go to that structural change yet because people don't see the possibility. And so I think you're right that we really need to think about that symbolic change to really think about what's possible with AI positively while still addressing the the the, the challenges with AI. And then that's going to influence the, you know, the structural element about what we need to change to really um, uh, you know, realize that opportunity. And then, as you mentioned, they're going to have impacts on the, the political and the human resource frame as well. Um, you know, because even if we can, we can vision what can, what AI can do, we can begin to think about how do we structure it? Who has the power to make that change? Right. You know, so, so so somebody can say, yeah, great idea. We're not going to do it for whatever reason, you know, and then all of that's going to, you know, impact the human resource element of it because, you know, once people begin to think about the, the possibility, they begin to think, okay, we can actually restructure this. You get motivated, you get excited, and then somebody goes, nope, we're not going to do it. And so yeah. that has an impact too. And so I think, you know, beginning to think, helping people envision what's possible, you know, maybe our, our first step in thinking about how to really um, harness the power of, of artificial intelligence in education. I thought it was really interesting when um, Paula Blank said um, he wanted to start a class that he was teaching with the prompt, if you started over rebuilding education, but with AI in mind, mm. what would it, what would it look like? Right. And I think that's like at the heart of what he was asking was how do all how does that vision and that mission that symbolic frame change, and what else does that ultimately change? How do you have to redesign your um, you know your your hierarchy of power and influence? How do you redesign the way that you deal with the people within your organization? How do you logistically redesign what you do? Mm-hmm. And I thought like that, that took my breath away when you said that. Cause I was like, I've never thought about that, but I've also been in traditional style education for basically my whole life at this point. <laughs> so right. I, um, so of course I, I didn't think of it that way, but, he's right. It would take like a complete overhaul and redesign. I just don't know, like you said, how possible that is considering there, there are really key power players in this discussion that can just veto the whole concept. Right. I think, you know, you know, one option is a charter school, you know, cause you have, you have, if you're going to create it from scratch, what would a charter school look like, you know, integrating AI? Cause we can't, but the, the challenge with that, if we can do that at the small level, can it really be scaled up without, you know, blowing up the entire system? And, and so, but we can't blow up the entire system, even though it, that would probably be the best approach, but what would a disrupt, what would a disruption look like? Yeah, that could change it. You know, we've already learned the impact of COVID. You know, the COVID forced huge disruption in education and change that wouldn't have happened without a significant disruption such as that. 
Um, yeah, but can we can we create a similar disruption that would force the rapid change that we saw in teaching and learning because of COVID? And so I think there we just have to think about what that might look like because we can't blow up the system, but can we <laughs> manufacture a major disruption? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, I want to thank you for your time today and for um, and for this discussion. I really find um, this super fascinating um, when mm-hmm. I was considering what things I wanted to talk about or I would hope to talk about on this podcast. AI was at the top of my list. Um, and I, I really appreciate and value uh, what you've had to say today. And it's a lot to think about, but it's it's really interesting and, and captivating all the possibilities that you've brought up. Yeah. Well, thanks for the invitation, um, Rand. It's, it's, I do enjoy talking about this as well. I just kind of tipping the, you know, just getting the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible, but I'm excited mm-hmm. by the opportunities with AI, despite the challenges that we're going to have to deal with more immediately. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day and, um, and I will chat with you later. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.